This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season two of Reinvented, we're exploring ways to design a better life from your physical health to your mental well being and far, far beyond. Today, I speak with my friend and the founder of The New Happy, Stephanie Harrison. In this conversation, I speak with Stephanie about why the old definition of happiness doesn't work, the science behind real happiness, and how you can start creating a better, happier life, both at work and in your personal life. Let's get started. Awesome. So, Stephanie, let's let's start in an obvious place. Um, I want to talk a lot about the new happy, but let's talk about the old happy. And what is the old happy and what's wrong with it? I love that you started there. Um, so the old happy is society's current definition of happiness. It's the definition of happiness that you grew up with that has been around you for your entire existence. And because of that, it has seeped into your brain and it has influenced and in many ways become your own definition of happiness. And this isn't something that many of us usually think about, how do I define happiness or a good life? But when we start to poke and prod at it, we realize that many of the choices that we've made in our lives are driven by our definition of happiness. And specifically, the old happy definition is all about either suppressing who you really are in order to be somebody who you're not, to live up to some idealistic standard that society sets for you, or prioritizing things like money, fame, power, and success because you think they will make you happy. Got it. So like, so for example, if I'm, if I have a job opportunity and I'm trying to decide like, should I take this job? And I'm thinking thoughts like, oh, this would be like really high status. This would be really impressive. Or maybe I'd make a lot of money. Like that stuff all looks and feels like old happy. Is that right? Exactly. That's totally right. And the really interesting nuance here is that It doesn't have to be. But if you're thinking thoughts like that, that's definitely a sign it's old happy. Because there are many people for whom the pursuit of extreme success or of, uh, you know, power or of the societal definition of happiness, you know, whether that's the two kids, the white picket fence uh, definition or something that's changed over time. There are many people for whom that is authentic. But for most of us, it's not. Most of us, we're just operating off of a script. And so if it's something that really makes you feel like you're being alive, that you're able to be more than you ever thought you possibly could, that's a sign that it's new happy. But when you're having a self-talk like the one you just described or, you know, other variants might be, uh, oh, like this person will finally think I'm worthy if I get this job. Or if once I get this certain amount of money, then I can stop and be a good person. Those are all signs of an old happy narrative that has come into your own head and shaped your life. Got it. That's really interesting. And so what's like at the heart of it, what's what's wrong with old happy? What's wrong with living sort of other people's definitions of, you know, what a good life looks like? I mean, the first thing is that it doesn't work. <laughs> so that's the really sad thing, right? For for people who are going out and pursuing old happy, they're doing it not out of some, you know, evil motivation or anything like that. It's because they genuinely believe that it's going to help to make them happy but it doesn't. It simply doesn't work. So an old happy definition is really predicated on what in psychology is called hedonic adaptation, which means that essentially you go out, you work incredibly hard, often for months or years to get this thing, like a job or a certain amount of money or a promotion or a fancy apartment or whatever it is that you set your sights on. And then you get it. 
And that happiness lasts for like a day, (laughs) Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit longer if you're lucky. And then it fades and you're left thinking, well, what do I do now? I must have chosen the wrong thing. Why didn't this work? There must be something wrong with me. When really it's the fact that society has told you something completely wrong to pursue. So the first issue is that unfortunately it just doesn't lead to your happiness. And then second, it also doesn't lead to the greater happiness of the world, which is in my opinion, the most important thing that any of us can work towards. So when you're pursuing old happy, you are, you know, by necessity prioritizing your own essentially selfish desires and needs, right? You're working towards something for yourself at the cost of many other people. And that has led to to many of the challenges that we see in the world today, you know, from from climate change to the extreme economic inequality to systemic racism, which is people prioritizing their own needs above everybody else's and essentially trying to climb on top of one another. Is is your sense that this is something that is like a phenomenon that's as old as time or do you <laughs> is it of your opinion that like things have gotten worse in this regard? I love that phrase, all this time. I think it's gotten worse. So over the last 50 years, the data shows that we have gotten richer. We've obviously become substantially more connected through the power of technology, the internet, all of our wonderful devices. And yet our happiness has not increased. And in many cases, in many of the uh, the world's Western countries, our happiness has decreased. So I believe that this is something that has accelerated with modern times, as you know, many things have alongside of things like the incredible increase in depression and anxiety, um, the you know the, the the issues that we're that we're facing in the world today. Yeah, I mean it's it's it is interesting, or it's sort of amazing, right? That we're in general as a planet, we're wealthier than we've ever been, we're safer than we've ever been, we're more connected than we've ever been. Like all of these things are true, and yet. I think on, on some of those dimensions that you've met, you've, you've looked at and you've mentioned like people are less happy than they've ever been, or certainly not any happier. And so I think it, you're right. It does, it does start to make you wonder like, okay, maybe, maybe those aren't the things that actually impact happiness. Right. And I think the other piece there that's associated with what you're talking about is uh, the way that we live has just changed so substantially. You know, when we think about the fact that I think the statistic is that one in four Americans don't have a close confidant to talk to. Um, You know, we, we live far apart from the people who we, who we love. We don't have as much of a community focus in our world anymore. And we, we are moving towards increasing individualism and materialism in society. And all of those trends are just accelerating this um, in a really scary way. Yeah. And and it's interesting to sort of having watched COVID play out for the last six to nine months, because I think it's, it's laying sort of bare some of these challenges, like some of the the shortcomings of the society that we've built and the way that we define success and happiness and all those things, because now having had this, you know, significant amount of adversity and something that's, that's definitely unprecedented, um, at least like in, in our recent, in recent lifetimes, like, I think it's going to show that a lot of the things that you are talking about, like people just haven't invested in enough. And, you know, hopefully we can talk more about this, but hopefully this is an area where there's some positives that come out of it and people start to do some reevaluation in terms of their own lives. Um, let me ask you a question just in terms of your own story. So you've talked about the old happy a bit here. Um, just thinking about your own life, was there an incident or a moment when you said, oh, I'm living the old happy, like I'm living my life in a way that doesn't make me happy and I don't want this anymore. How did this, how did yes. this all play out for you? <laughs> Yes, there was definitely a moment. So I was working. um, So I 
I uh, graduated college. I went to NYU and I was living in New York City and I had gotten this big fancy job at a management consulting company. And I thought that I had everything lined up that was going to make me happy. You know, I had moved into this beautiful apartment and I had this job I'd worked so hard for over so many years of school. And I was doing that job for about a year and a half. And then one day I just basically collapsed and realized I'm actually very, very miserable. And this is, this is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted. And it led to a physical, physical crisis. You know, I ended up getting, um, I, I literally was at work one day and I got full body psoriasis that looked like scales all over my body from the tips of my fingers to the tip of my nose, just appearing out of nowhere as a manifestation of my stress and unhappiness. And, you know, I had these panic attacks and all of this kind of conspired to make me realize that like, wow, this is actually not something that's working for me. And, you know, I was kind of pissed about it (laughs) because I had been listening to the old happy narrative for so long. And I was under the impression that all of these things that I had worked so hard to achieve would allow me to then be happy. And that was the story that was running through my head. It was kind of like, well, once I get this job, then I'll be happy. Once I get this promotion, then I'll be happy. And I essentially just hit a wall and realized that there was going to be an endless line of those things in front of me unless I decided to change my life and to pursue it. So that was the the big moment for me that actually sparked my interest in this topic, not only personally, but more uh, more intellectually in terms of wanting to study it. And also what then led me to go back and get my master's degree and write my thesis on this topic. Um, but you know, the interesting thing is that old happy is so pervasive in the world that there are little moments in my life where I find myself slipping back into that mindset, even, even amidst everything that I've learned amidst the fact that this is my guiding light philosophy. And I think that just really shows how ingrained this is in our society and how hard it is to really to change our lives when we've, we've been kind of told this story for, for the duration of them. And that's why I believe it's so important that we we build a community of people who believe in this philosophy and who want to support one another. Because when we when we do things together and when we try and change in a community, we can we can make real positive things happen. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned sort of how pervasive this is. I I feel like to me, diet is or food in general is like a really good analog here because it's like it's one of those things where you can have the intention of, you know, eating healthy, of of you know, staying on your diet, whatever it is, but like you step out into the world and there's fast food everywhere. There's things <laughs> that are super convenient. Like everyone around you is eating things that like you 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 know, it's not what you want to be eating or whatever. And it's really, really, really difficult to maintain that, that willpower. Right. And so it becomes this exercise. It becomes an exercise in like structuring your life and designing your life in a way where you don't have to have so many of those moments where you're, you're using up your willpower, like however much of it you actually have. Right. And so I, I think like to me, a lot of, a lot of my changes started with diet and that's been a really helpful lens. And then as I've gone down that path, like I've started to, to explore other areas, but I think it's interesting because, you know, what you're talking about, like the, the mental process in a lot of ways is very similar, right? Like you, it, you, you can go out into the world with an aspiration, but there's so many things that can conspire against you that, you know, you really have to be thoughtful and you need to have support and you need to have a plan and you need to have things to keep you honest and all that stuff. Otherwise it's awfully hard. Mm, it's, <laughs> I've never thought about it in that way. It's such a perfect metaphor. It is almost like, you know, when you're out for dinner and 
you're on a diet and somebody goes, oh, let's order dessert <laughs> and your willpower just goes out the window. It's, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So tell me, so let's go back to sort of you and, and the new happy. So you have this realization and, and a physical realization, right? That something's not working and it leads you down this path. You go back to school, you start studying well-being and happiness. Um, how did that sort of lead to the new happy or, or maybe a better question is, so where did that take you? What is the new happy and what have you learned since? So the definition of new happy is finding your gifts and sharing them with the world in order to make it a better place. And I came up with that definition after about six years of pouring over research papers and books and interviewing people and trying to figure out what the what the secret was. Because I had figured out what didn't work, right? Through my old happy realization, but I didn't know what did work. And obviously people have been thinking about this for for thousands of years. And so there's a lot of great material to mine as well as people who have found true happiness in their lives. And you know, when I think about true happiness, I think about a type of happiness that's stable and that isn't dependent on external events going your way. And so that process of discovery led me to essentially combine the analysis of these hundreds of studies, these interviews I'd done, and to propose this new definition of happiness in my thesis and to, to back it up with, with all this great research. And then after I did that, I didn't really know what to do with it. <laughs> um, you know, it was this like 300 page paper. And I thought, who is going to be interested in this? And how am I going to communicate this, this idea effectively? And so I sort of put it aside for, for a little while. I was working at LinkedIn at the time, and I, um, I, I just really wasn't sure how to bring it to life. And so I decided to let it marinate for a little bit. And then I started a weekly newsletter which is how we met. And I started writing about this, figuring that maybe if I, if I write about this, people will be, will be interested and they'll learn a little bit and then they can start figuring out how to apply the new happy concept in their own lives. And so that, that lasted for about a year and a half. And I was working at Thrive Global at the time, leading the development of their wellbeing programs. And then when the pandemic hit, it just made me realize that as you said, you know, this is just a time of unprecedented space to examine what's working and what isn't. And I really believe that we could we could help a lot of people if we um, if we start to talk about this stuff. And so that's when I left Thrive and uh, moved into working full time on the new Happy as a Business, which right now is a media platform and forthcoming will be a technology platform as well, helping people to figure out how to find their new happy and then how to live it more effectively. That's super cool. And if people want to learn more, it's the new Correct. That's right. Awesome. Um, I was, there was a, a blog post, I think it was from maybe last week or the week before, and it was about pr- your problems. Right. And I thought this was so genius. And you were talking about how you can think about your problems sort of on, as a two by two and as a, as a management consultant, and I know you were a former <laughs> consultant, like I, I really geek out on two by two. So I, like, I appreciated that. Um, I wrote that for you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I needed that, but I thought what was super cool about it was you were, you're basically saying, look, you can think about your problems and you can array them in this way. You can say there's problems that you choose or that you didn't choose. And then there's problems that either lead to growth or detract from growth. And the idea, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically to do an inventory and to say, look at the problems, look at your life, look at the things that you spend your time thinking about and see which box they belong in. And then ask yourself, essentially, do they really believe, do they really need to be in this box? Should they be in this box? 
and do I perhaps want to start shifting this mix? Tell me sort of what was, what was the inspiration for this and what's been, um, what's been the reaction from, from this? So the inspiration for this was actually came from my own life and trying to identify an area in which I was really stuck and how to apply the new happy philosophy when things are really very hard. And I think this is very relevant, you know, to the topic of this podcast, which is, which is resilience. And as, as many of your guests have talked about, we go through life and we face things that we would never choose. And the first time that we realize that it's, it's very painful, right? Um, I think that it can be incredibly hard, especially for people who are really immersed in this kind of, again, hyper individualistic society, where if you work hard enough, you can get everything you want. (laughs) Um, You know, once that happens and something from life just hits you, it's hard to reckon with it. And it's hard to identify how to get your agency and your power back. And unfortunately, the most important thing that we can do in those moments is to reclaim our agency and to begin to to build upon it and expand it. And so I was reckoning with this problem that I have in my own life, which, which was a similar situation to what I'm just describing, which is my partner, Alex, is incredibly ill, uh, has been for almost three years. And continues to to decline in his in his illness and i was trying to figure out how i could think about that problem differently and i realized that i was essentially victimizing myself the way that i was thinking about it because in that 2 by 2 i was putting it in the box that was i didn't choose this problem and it's detracting from my growth like it's getting in the way of you know my life and I realized that that was a very harmful way to look at it because first of all, I had been rolling up, you know, all of these different smaller problems into this bigger problem of Alex's illness and then throwing it in this box and just saying like, ugh, like I should be let off the hook because, you know, this thing is so hard. But when I started to tease out all those different problems, I realized that actually there are parts of it that are incredibly beneficial for my growth. There are parts of it that are incredibly important that I'm choosing actually. And yes, there are parts that I didn't choose, but they're very small. And the parts that are detracting from my growth are actually almost non-existent. Almost everything in my life related to that problem is actually something that's helping me to grow. And as soon as I was able to audit that problem, to split it up and then to sort it into those different boxes, I had this enormous mindset shift where I realized that I was seeing things in a way that was harming me. I had this enormous blind spot around it. And if I could see it in this new way through this new framework, then my well-being would be more, much more powerfully affected. I'd be able to make a bigger difference in my, in my own life, in Alex's life as a caregiver. And then hopefully this is something that might help other people out there. So that was really the inspiration was trying to solve my own problem of my problem. Um, and the, the response has been amazing. I've gotten so many great emails from people who have said that they found it to be an incredibly helpful tool. Um, I think honestly, I think it might be something that could be worthwhile for coaches or, um, you know, teachers to use because, it's, it is a little bit of a process to go through this and it might be, it might be uh, useful to have somebody guide you through it just to make it a little bit easier. I think what, what I really loved about it was 
uh, a lot of times when when things are you know not going great or when you're you're struggling with something, it's really easy to get caught up in the emotions of that. I find, and sometimes what's really useful is to have a little bit of space, like to do something that creates just that little bit of room where you can ask yourself all the questions you're talking about. Like, is this necessarily a bad thing? Is this permanent? Is this something that's impacting all of my life? Like we talk about the three P's sometimes, right? In positive psychology. But like, I, I think what's really cool about something like this is that the process of sitting down and going through it can be a really wonderful way to start to separate out some of those like feelings or even those thought loops that we get into from like the actual underlying elements of what's really going on. And so I, I find mm-hmm. that to be really, really interesting and really powerful. I think the other thing I liked about it is um, I've been thinking a lot about like the fact that there's many paths to the top of the mountain. There's lots of different ways that people grow and change in their life. And like what works for me isn't necessarily what would work for you. And what I think is cool about what you're doing with the newsletter um, and also in this specific instance is that this is sort of a different way of tackling sort of this type of thinking, right? Like there's lots of stuff out there about your problems and growing from them and, you know, how things aren't so bad and be positive, like all that stuff. And there's, there's a totally a place for that. And for some people that absolutely works. But I also think it's cool sometimes to see like maybe an exercise that's a little bit more tangible or something that appeals to folks who are a little bit more analytically minded. Um, and so I, I just have a lot of appreciation that um, the way that you're approaching this, I think is meant to reach a, a range of people. Um, and, and it seems like some of it is, you know, targeted at people who are kind of like these recovering left brained, uh, people, which I certainly was one of them and still am. Yes, I know. Me too. If it's like a physician heal thyself, right. Um, it's, uh, I, I totally resonate with that. And thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I think that, I think the interesting thing, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this is when you're in the middle of a really big problem or a really big challenge or a really big setback, it feels impossible to find space because you're dealing with the problem all the time. It's always there. And you're constantly trying to deal with what happens afterwards, which is something I've learned, which is the problem births new problems, right? Like when you're facing a really big problem, like in Alex's illness, it's it's not just coping with Alex's illness every day. It's the setback that he faces today and then the new medicine that that requires and then figuring out what pharmacy can get you the medicine in time and then calling to make sure they don't close before you can get the order in and then the postal service is affected by the government and so it's going to be delayed like it just it's these spirals of birthed problems and so what what can happen at least what's happened for me is that chaos can be very overwhelming and it can be all encompassing and so without the ability, without the discipline, I think to to know that, hey, taking five to 10 minutes just now, just to, to take a step back, as you said, to get some space from the emotions and from the, the problem solving that you're trying to do and actually just consider from a higher level, what, what how am I thinking about this? How am I responding versus reacting can be so helpful. But the irony is that it it's hard. It's really hard in these times. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so I've been, the way that I think about this is that there's sort of like, and I've been, I've done some writing about this and I'm in the process of doing a little bit more, but there's like, if I think about how things progress over time, there's a period where it's like the calm before the storm. Life is like relatively normal, whatever that looks like for, for you or for someone else. And then there's these events, these occurrences that happen where it's like a big dip, right? And maybe the, the, the Y axis, if you're on a chart is going to be like your, your well being or your happiness. 
And so there's this big dip, like especially when it's something really acute. Like for me, that was getting sick. For someone else, it might be getting wounded in a, in a war. Like maybe it's you know any number of things. Someone passes away in your family. There's this thing that sort of happens, and it 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 gives you like a big sort of negative shock against your happiness. And then there's sort of the aftermath of that where people have an opportunity to grow, to rebuild and do all those things. So I think about it in these like three different phases. And, and I think what I've experienced and what I hear talking to some other people is when you're in that middle phase, when you're in like the acute, car, acute part of a crisis, it's really difficult to start doing new things, to try to necessarily be your best self. Like a lot of times your job is just to survive. It's to do the best that you can, be totally lenient with yourself, to lean on other people, to ask for help. Like, and just to get through it. And I think we would all love to be in a place where adversity strikes and then suddenly we become better people. But I think there is that period where you just have to get through it. And there's an opportunity on the back end to, you know, talk about what happened, to learn, to maybe set some commitments for yourself, um, to grow, to change, to do all those things. And so the implication of this, and I think what's really interesting, at least from my perspective, is that it means that a lot of the resilience activities need to happen when things are going reasonably well. Like when you have the headspace to take on something new. And so I think that this is the paradox or this is the part that's really hard. Like whether we're talking about organizations and the way that they behave, whether we're talking about communities, whether we're talking about individuals, like the, the burning platform, the case for change is the weakest during the time when your ability to change and to do these things is the highest. And, and so I, I think that sort of in that interim period or that beginning period when things look pretty good, that's the time when if you can realize or if you can say, hey, when I take a few minutes to you know, take some deep breaths or when I make a point to call someone that I haven't talked to in a while um, or when I go to the gym, like when I do or when I eat well, I'm doing these things like I feel better. This is important to my well-being. Like just that learning and that recognition is super useful. And then I think that allows you, that enables you when you do hit one of those rough patches to actually go back to that and say, you know what, right now, like I need to take a minute for myself or I need to get back on a schedule, or I need to, you know, call someone or whatever it is. But I think it's really hard to do that if you haven't done the work and haven't started to plant some of those seeds before that crisis hits. Mm, that's fascinating. I I am totally in agreement with that model. I think that, you know, it's it's really interesting because I think that it's almost a preventative mindset, what you're describing in a way, right? Like it's, you're, you're taking care of yourself. And I, I think the interesting thing is that, and it kind of ties back to this old happy, new happy paradigm. It's that we, we don't like to think about pain and suffering, obviously, right? We don't want to think that we are ever going to be the people who, who this, this horrible thing happens to. And so when times are good, it's really hard to motivate yourself to think about to think about those things happening to you because you just want to enjoy enjoy the good times and i think there's there's a, certainly an argument to be said for that but my practice has always been to try and consistently draw attention to the impermanence of my existence and the fragility of life and how delicate everything is at every moment and i really believe that that consistent practice of remembering that even when times were good has been, as you said, really helpful for me during this time because I I built this muscle of awareness that has has helped me to be resilient in facing, you know, this this ongoing crisis that Alex and I have been going through. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Like building muscles, I think is a good 
a good analogy or a good way of thinking about it. And obviously, like we all face, you know, like crises big and small over our lifetime, right? To things happen to us, they happen to loved ones, they happen to people that we work with. And so it's, it's not to say this is sort of a one-time thing. We're all preparing for like one big bad thing to happen in our life. It's many of these things that sort of loop over time. Um, and as things happen, there's an opportunity to grow and to change, um, and to get stronger and to be more prepared for the next one. Um, so I, I think that it's, um, I think that's encouraged, like an encouraging message from my standpoint and that there's, you know, there's opportunities to grow and to change and to be better prepared for what comes down the road. Um, and it's not like it's, you know, it's, it's these things where, um, you have to handle it perfectly. I, I don't think that that's true at all. I think we'll never handle these really difficult things perfectly because that's, that's the nature of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. The interesting thing about that too, is that most of the things that help you to prepare yourself to be resilient are things that also help you in the short term. So one of the things that's really essential from the the new happy philosophy is this idea of a win-win, right? Like exercise as an example that we've been talking about is one of the single best things you can do in the short term for your mood and for um, for your state of mind. But it's also obviously one of the very best things you can do in the long term. So those win-wins are prevalent throughout uh, throughout our lives, there are so many of them, and the more that we figure out how to to embed into our lives, into our habits, the the better off we are. Not only in the moment, in the moment that we're that we're hopefully dealing with good things, but also in the future when we are facing those inevitable big or small setbacks. I love the idea of of win wins and, and reframing it in that way. Like I think about when I was a kid and growing up, and like my parents would say, you know, you need to eat your vegetables before you get the good stuff. And like now as a parent, I think about that. I'm like, wait a minute, like the vegetables are good stuff. Like they're enjoyable. Like there's a way to make vegetables that's that's wonderful. Like and I think there's a lot of that where for whatever reason we talk about things that that are good for us as being hard and because they're hard, maybe they're or not enjoyable, like therefore mm. they're things to be avoided. Like meditation is hard, right? Exercise, like getting up early is hard. Like there's I think a narrative around a lot of these things that I think is self-defeating. And the reality is is like the things that I've found a way to stick with and the things that, that seem to help me day in and day out are the things where I've found that win win. And so it's like, yes. you know, went through periods of time where I was, I was working out, let's say, and, you know, I was super active when I was younger and that was great. And then I got to a place because of various injuries and, and just getting older where I was like, I can't do these workouts. And I found that the workouts that I were doing, like I just didn't enjoy them. And when I didn't enjoy them, I wouldn't go to the gym. And so as dumb as this sounds, like a big thing for me was letting go of sort of that old way of being fit and image issues and all that stuff and just saying, I'm going to do things that are fun for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Like I'm just going to do stuff that I enjoy doing. And for me, that means a lot of variety. It means things that are a little bit different. It means rolling around the floor and doing things that are crazy. But that brought the fun back to me. And I'm now it's easier for me to get back and do something that's good for me. It doesn't look like what it was before. Um, but finding that win-win, like finding something that works for me and is good for me long-term, um, that's, that's where I'm finding a lot of the, the opportunities and the things that are sustainable and that I'll keep up with. Mm, that's so great. It doesn't sound dumb at all. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. I mean, I, I personally think that it's how do you find those win-wins in your own life? And then how do you find your, those win-wins between yourself and the world? Because ultimately living a new happy life is, is the ultimate win-win. What is the thing that benefits me that also benefits other people? And as you described, the research has actually found that when we do things that are fun and enjoyable, we we obviously then experience positive emotions like joy and amusement and um, gratitude and all those great things. 
those positive emotions, they act like glitter dust on our habits. They make it easier for us to stick to them. So it's just, it's a bit of a fool's errand to think that we can consistently push ourselves and use, you know, this willpower, got to hammer your life into shape with, you know, severity and spreadsheets and all these things. When really, if we just go with what brings you joy, that's a win-win. Like, what does that expression look like for you right now? Again, knowing that it can change, you're far more likely to stick with the positive habit you're trying to do. And you're far more likely to then make an impact on the world that, that leaves it a little bit better off. Let me let me ask you a question. So I think I've said this a couple of times that the work you're doing is amazing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan myself. Um, and I think that your work has been just really helpful and eye opening to me. Um, and so I certainly hope that everyone has a chance to check out what you're doing. And, and I think that many people will subscribe and, and enjoy it. Um, but I want to th- I want to think about sort of not just the individual, but also think about where it is that people go and spend most of their time, which is work, right? And you've spent some time in some big organizations, some very prestigious organizations. And I'm curious, like in your mind, what what would it take for organizations to start to think like the new happy to adopt the new happy? Or if you're stuck in an organization that ha- perhaps looks a lot more old happy, what can you do as an individual to try to bring this thinking and this mindset into your day-to-day life? I love this question. Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like we could talk for about six hours about this, uh, knowing our shared interests. So I think that from an organizational perspective, I think that there we have some really good examples of companies who are doing this already. And I'd actually use one of my alma mater's LinkedIn as a great example. So LinkedIn has a um, has a purpose, and there is no employee at LinkedIn who doesn't know that purpose, and it's to create economic opportunity for all members of the global workforce. And that is very inspiring because when we talk about it, we talk about how it's about making it possible for every person to find a job that helps them to achieve their personal goals. And that's a really inspiring purpose for for a company to align themselves to. And what Jeff Weiner, who recently left as CEO, was so extraordinary at is consistently tying every single thing that LinkedIn did to the mission and to the vision, to that broader purpose. And so, you know, you'd have a really tactical example of this would be in the company all hands, there would be a product release and the product team would get up, they would present what we had done. And then Jeff would make a comment about it and articulate exactly how that product release was helping us to achieve our mission and our vision. It was just hammered home so consistently. And so the result of that was this workforce of people who are incredibly inspired to work at LinkedIn, who are very passionate about what we are working on and feel as though everything that they do is directly contributing to that. So you'd have people who are working in ad sales who felt as though they were living an altruistic purpose because of the way the organization supported that idea. And, you know, they were, they were helping it because we were all kind of aligned to this overarching superordinate goal. And seeing that play out was very instructive for me because I had studied this. I did my undergrad thesis on, on this topic of how do we relate, um, how do we improve the relationship between employees and their companies in the world? But then seeing it play out in reality was, was wonderful and um, very, very instructive for me. So I think that the, the lesson for organizations here is that you need to have clarity in the benefit that you are providing to the world. So it can't be something that is self-serving. It has to be other-serving and it has to be authentic. 
So I'm sure we can both think of examples of companies that are, you know, purpose washing themselves into, um, you know, into trying to inspire their employees because this is some something of a trend nowadays. But it has to be true and it has to be really meaningful. And everything that your company does has to relate to that in some way, or you have to draw that relationship for people. And as a manager or as a leader, I really believe it's your responsibility to continually reinforce that and help people to understand what is it that I do every single day that makes a difference towards that purpose. And even if you're not working in an organization that's more on the new happy end of things, if you're in an organization that's more on the old happy, that is something that you can do differently. So you can take a look at your day-to-day work and identify who is it that benefits from what you do. So when you show up in the day, what happens? Who is the ultimate beneficiary of the work that you're doing? How you draw your attention to that can actually change the level of meaning and purpose that you find in your day-to-day and make it feel much more positive for you, as well as ultimately improve your motivation as well. So this isn't necessarily easy to do when you're working in a place that's challenging or demotivating or that is, um, you know, even potentially doing harm to the world. But it's something that you can use to tide you over until you are able to find an organization that's more aligned with your goals. I think that's that's an amazing answer. And I think one of the things that it strikes me about this and listening to what, like reading some of your readings and listening to what you're saying earlier was that sometimes like when we start down this path, we think like, I need to change the world. I need to be doing these huge things. And sometimes I think that it seems like the right thing to do actually is to make your world smaller, like to Mm. get to a place where you are thinking about small things that you can control, right? So if you're in the midst of a crisis, thinking about like what's in front of me right now, not thinking about like what are all the bad things that could happen in the future, but just like what am I doing right now? And it works similarly, like I love your example of, okay, maybe you're in a situation where like you don't have a great boss, maybe the organization's not, you know, changing the world in the way that you're super motivated by, but there's probably something in what you do, like whether it's managing the people around you, maybe it's making someone else's life easier, whatever, like there's something that you can do that would bring you some joy and that would help serve other people. And so that becomes much more, I think, feasible and that becomes really empowering when it's like in any given situation, there's something you can do. Like, even if you're in the hospital Mm. and you're on your back, like you can smile at a nurse that comes in, you can have a conversation with them and, you know, and like brighten up their day, even for a moment. And that's a really, really powerful thing. Even if you're in a situation where like nothing else is going right. And so I love, I love the idea of like making things, making things small. And then I think the sort of the implication of that for me is like, that sometimes is the best thing that you can do for the world. Like that is the gift that you can give to the world sometimes is like having that peace in your world and feeling good about where you are and just sometimes breaking the cycle of a bunch of negative things that are happening. Right. I mean, that is so, so core to my belief system and to what I'm trying to communicate with the new happy. I actually think that this whole, you know, I have to change the world. I need more of a purpose. I need to find meaningful work that we're seeing from, from, you know, my fellow millennials and Gen Zers is actually an old happy symptom in a lot of cases because it's coming from a place of grandiosity because the secret to changing the world is to change your world, as you said, like your small world, wherever you are. So that's your family, that's your friends, that's your community, that is your workplace, that's the people who, your neighbors, the people who you pass on the street. We we all are not destined to make, you know, a Nobel Prize winning impact on the world. <laughs> um, that's not that's not the only way to change the world. There are 
countless ways to change the world. And in fact, I actually believe that each of us has a specific way in which we are, we can use our gifts to change the world. And most of the time that's local. And I would actually far prefer people to recognize that the power comes from that local approach and the happiness and the joy. Because when you look at most of the world's most successful people, most of them are extremely unhappy. <laughs> most of them are are miserable and they're actually doing more harm than good at this point. So I actually think that if we can, if we can shift our orientation to say, I'm going to change my world and I'm going to change it just to be a little bit better and do what I can, it's, it is so empowering. And then that in turn can, can build on itself and become, you know, a, a legacy, a, um, a major, a major world change as well as a major life change for you. It's so interesting. When, like when I was in business school, entrepreneurship was like the very cool thing at the time. And before that it was investment banking. And before that it was, you know, big corporate, like fortune 500 companies. And I think now, like I have a lot of conversations with folks who really want to get into the social sector. And I think it's so interesting what you say about it being like almost like a status good, right? A status symbol where it's like, this has cachet in, in sort of this new world that we're all in. And so people want to go into it and, and there's like so much good to be done. And there's so much amazing things that do happen in the social sector. But I think if you're going into it, like for the wrong reasons, then I'm not sure that Mm -hmm. that's actually that much better than, you know, going and doing whatever you were going to do before. Like, and and I think it's interesting. It sort of makes me think about like, like romantic comedies, I feel like are another symptom of this, where it's like you watch these movies and you think like, I have to find this amazing person to be whole. Like if I don't have this person, like I couldn't possibly be happy. And like, well, that's really like nice and heartwarming. And like, you know, having a partner is, can be amazing. Like it also creates this really negative image of like, I'm, I'm not happy. I can't be happy without someone else. And I think like, I feel like I'm seeing the same thing here too, whereas people become really fixated on purpose it creates this dichotomy where either like you're living your purpose and everything's great or you don't have it and you haven't found it. And so you're a failure. Mm. And I think that is really, really damaging. And in in effect, like just puts a lot more pressure on people. It's so interesting. Yeah. I've never thought about it like that, but you're totally right. I mean, it's like, you're taking this, this in my language, it's you're taking this new happy value and imposing an old happy structure on it. Right. Of like shoulds or should nots as you're describing it. Yeah, exactly. And like what you get away from it seems is like the authenticity, like the part that really matters of like, I'm doing things because, you know, I value kindness and I want to help people. I'm doing things because like I'm in a position where I can help someone. And so like I want to, you know, use my skills to their highest and best good to serve other people like those types of things, which I think come from a really great place, like whether that's being a good neighbor or, or doing really amazing work for a nonprofit, like it doesn't really matter what it is. There's something authentic about it. But then sometimes it's like, if you're just trying to replicate that and do something that looks like that, I think that can end up feeling really, really different. It's really, I love the analogy of the romantic comedy. I think that's spot on. I mean, I, I, I see this also happening with, um, I think this is related to your point about the social good, but one of my goals with profiling new happy heroes on the podcast and throughout the newsletter is to show that you don't have to become either a life coach or somebody who works at a nonprofit to be a new happy hero. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to become an expert in well-being. You don't have to become somebody who um who is, you know, trying to end world hunger. You don't have to move to India and become Mother Teresa. Like that's not that's not what we're advocating for here because 
for 99% of people, that's not authentic. And the most important thing is to figure out what is that authenticity that the part of you that feels joy in, in the doing and could do something forever. And then how do you figure out how to offer that up to other people in a way that serves the world? You know, I think about, I think about somebody like, um, like, like Tony Hawk, who's a skateboarder, right? Like he has made an amazing impact on the world, but if Tony Hawk had decided to go and, uh, you know, work at a nonprofit, then we wouldn't have the major contributions he's made to, to charity, but also to skateboarding culture and to helping kids out. Right. Like there's, there's so many ways that you can use your gifts to benefit other people and following this cookie cutter approach of, um, you know, oh, I am going to go and do this thing because that's the way to find, to be good or to do good in the world. It's, it's just another harmful manifestation of, uh, of thinking we need to be a certain way rather than just being our true selves. Yeah, that's really, I think that's super powerful. And I also think that's really liberating. Like what right. you know, your contribution is, is whatever, you know, whatever works for you. It's whatever resonates with you. It's whatever is sort of that intersection of, you know, what you're good at, what you enjoy and what the world needs. Like, and that's super specific to each person. And it just, it doesn't have to look like anything. Yeah. It doesn't have to be anything other than you. Like it's, it goes back to what we were talking about when you were sharing about your exercise, right? Like what's fun for you? Like for me, I genuinely find it fun to read research articles. Like (laughs) genuinely, I really do. And I love to translate them into things that people understand and that can make a difference in their day. And there was no job that would allow me to do that. Um, until I got my job at Thrive. And then I, you know, made my own job as being an entrepreneur. And that is a really weird niche, you know, like it's very strange and it's the result of my, my background and my passions and what I've spent my time doing. And everyone should be able to, to, to live that in some way. For some people, they find it through their work. Some people find it through their family. Some people find it through their community. Some people find it through spirituality or, or through religion, you know, we, we all have our own paths and there's no one path that you have to take. It's, it's just about your path and finding it and walking it. Yeah. I think, and I think that's so amazing. And just realizing that there's, there's no formula and, and the, the value I think comes from the journey. It comes from the process of going through and exploring. And like, I have tried and explored so many different things, like, you know, trying to get healthy again, trying to find joy in my life, like you name it. I've tried many, many different things. And in some respects, like I, I look at that and say, wow, like I spent so much time and money and effort on all these different things. But then I think about it differently and it's like, yeah, but I, I got to a place where I found some things that, that really worked for me, that stuck with me for whatever reason. And I never would have gotten there. Like if someone had just showed up on day one and said, here, you should go do this. I never would have done it. Right. <laughs> right. And, I, and we see this all, I see this all the time, like trying to help people, trying to get, you know, trying to help individuals or organizations to change. Like there's something that's really important about that personal discovery. And I think in a lot of cases, you just can't shortcut it. Like you need to try different things. You need to fail. You need to experience it. And you need to do that learning because it's so specific to the individual or to the organization itself. Yes. Couldn't agree more. So listen, this has been an amazing conversation. Let me, let me end with sort of one question. So for folks who are you know, inspired by this conversation, they want to learn a little bit more about the new happy or just sort of this world in which you are swimming. Um, certainly, I would point them to the new happy first of all, right? I would point them to thenewhappy.com. Definitely check it out. Sign up for the newsletter. Um, but are there other resources? Are there other paths that they might explore in their own journey um, 
things that have stuck out to you, people that you love, books that you love, um, articles, communities, anything like that, that you find super inspiring and that you might suggest for other folks? I would say that I have a couple practices. Can I, can I share those? Sure. That's great. Um, I think that the, so one of my kind of core tenets is that as it's actually related to exactly what we're talking about, that you learn by doing, right? Like you have to, you have to do things <laughs> and that's, that's how you find happiness. It's how you, how you find your authentic self and your gifts. And it's how you figure out how to share them with the world. So there have been a lot of books that have really helped me on my journey. Um, I think that the practices I've taken away from them are, are more powerful. And so the first thing I would recommend is um, practicing loving kindness meditation. So this is one of the, the core ideas at the heart of the new happy philosophy, which is that we are all interconnected and that when we take care of the world, we can take care of ourselves. And that when we decide that we want to love and support all beings everywhere, we include ourselves in that. And so um, there's tons of YouTube videos and playlists and things like that. Just Google loving kindness meditation. I would give that a try. The first time I did this, it transformed my my whole life. It was a bit of a spiritual breakthrough for me. And I really believe that it's one of the key practices that can help us to transform our worldview and, and to allow us to, to be to, to tap into that true self that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then if you are wondering like, what's my new happy and how do I find it? I think that one of the best pieces of advice I can give you is just to take, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and set a timer and go sit quietly with yourself and ask yourself that question and ask, you know, what, what am I, what do I like? What am I curious about? What, what was I, what was I passionate about when I was a kid or when I was younger that I've let go and listen to what comes up. Oftentimes you'll just hear, you know, tiny little whisper of something and grab onto that whisper and then just start to do something to work towards it. Something really small. So if, you know, you, you hear from inside of you that you were really passionate about uh, working with kids and that's not something that's a part of your life. Well, Maybe there's a small way that you can start to do that. Maybe you can even just spend time with, you know, uh, your friends' kids or your um, any kids in your family, right? Just literally, just looking for a tiny way to start to activate it and then to follow that path. That has been the uh, the the practice that I've seen help the most people and the one that's been most helpful in my own life as well. That's amazing. This is this is super useful. This is really helpful, and I definitely gonna go check those things out. Um, I, I I know that feeling of of like you finally try something and it's a breakthrough for you, and that's such a wonderful feeling. Um, and obviously, it's different for everyone, but um, I think that's one of the joys of trying lots of different things is when you have that moment, like you've laid enough groundwork and you've seen enough things, and then something comes along and you're you're ready for it. Mm, um, that's a really yes. cool experience. Listen, Stephanie, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, and I really, really appreciate you coming on here and having this conversation. Oh, thank you. It's been amazing. It's been such a joy. And I'm so grateful to you for inviting me to, to come here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.